Don't miss the Can-Am Holiday Volleyball Showcase, North America's premier men's volleyball event. Experience and enjoy world-class athletes, coaches, and competition in Toronto this holiday season, December 28th to 31st at the Toronto Pan-Am Sports Centre. Get your tickets while they last at www.cahvs.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome to or welcome back to another episode of Passing Dimes. This is a special one. He might have to be our first returning guest or our first two-part episode because there's just too much to cover. So to get it right off the hop here, four-time provincial indoor champion. Uh, we tried to count up the beach ones. We probably got to at least three before we lost count. Five-time indoor national club champion, four-time national champion on the beach. Uh, medaled every year. He was at Western in the OUA. He's got a national silver medal from back when it was CIS. Where was it? U Sports. We'll find out in a second. And most importantly, he's the logo of the show. So please welcome the logo, Garrett May, to the show. Yes, yes. yes. Welcome, Garrett May. Happy to be here. <laughs> Uh, we didn't give you a lot of notice. I, I told you how the logo came to be and how Dallas and I were talking, and I was originally like working off a picture of Miles Evans, who, again, hopefully we'll have on the show. He's a good volleyball player, but we thought, why would we have an American on the logo and we could have a Canadian? So then all of a sudden you became the logo. What did you think the first time you saw it? Because did people ask you if it was your show? No, nobody asked me, surprisingly. I don't really know if people know that it's me, which is kind of good. <laughs> but but uh, I, was, I was honored, and I also thought, well... Okay, so you're going to have me on the show now, right? Like, I'm the logo, so I better be, like, featured strongly. Come on, dude. Like, I don't know. I'm pretty full of myself. So, like, yeah, I'm, I, yeah of course I'll be your logo. Yeah, so this took a little long to get you, but I think, like I said, you might have to be the first returning guest, or we might just have to have a couple two-parters, or just, you know, you'll be back. But listen, I'll talk about anything for any amount of time with you, okay? Well, let's set the scene. Let's start with your career. Uh... Jen Cross was recently on the show, and we talked about how she played on one of the greatest uh, female club teams of all time. The male one might go to your brother's team, but yours has to be in the conversation just based on how many provincials and nationals you won. Uh, just tell us about Crush Volleyball Club. Like, your, your dad had a good thing going there. Yeah, it was pretty special, man. And, yeah, if I'm being honest, like, Reed's team, that Crush team, is, is pretty famous. They got a number of guys who are on our national team right now. I, I was just talking to, to a friend, and they were like, yeah, I saw Danny on the plan getting time on the national team. And I was like, that maybe brings it up to, like, three or four guys who represented Canada indoors, as well as probably two or three guys, maybe more, three or four guys who've represented Canada on the beach from those crushed teams. So, like, a, a pretty, pretty epic kind of guys who've come out of there, but it truly started as, like, Hey, Garrett, just get your friends and we'll play, um, which is kind of crazy. And that's, that's what my team really was. And Reed's team was kind of like, hey, people realized how special that team had kind of come together. And it was like all the best players really wanted to kind of be a part of the special team. And they, they did some great stuff. But, yeah, to this day, like I still hang out with the crush guys who were from a high school and stuff like that. And it was like it was just my buddies, really which is, I don't know, kind of special, I think. Yeah, we mentioned your brother's team. So they had Danny Domenico, Steve Marr, Reed. Uh, Grant was a year older, so he kind of played. Grant O'Gorman played on both of your teams. Mm -hmm. uh, Lucas Coleman was mm -hmm. there. Uh, Kyle Fick and Aaron Nussbaum, I think, played on the tweener team. Nussbaum was there for the one year yep. on, on Reed's team on the 18-year year. And uh, yeah, Jason McCarthy, mm -hmm. uh, I don't know where he's at now, but he was dominant. They had yeah, they had a lot of guys. They, like even their bench guys went and made like starting spots on university teams. And your team as well went on to play university because you had Alex Park. One hundred percent of my team did actually. <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. So 
just kind of let us behind the scenes a little bit. What was practice like with, with your dad and Aaron Cadu coaching it? Like you mentioned your team may not got on to play on the national team, but everybody went and played post-secondary and you were dominant in clubs. So what was, what was the secret sauce there? Yeah, it's funny, man. I, I can't really point to anything specific. Like when I look, think back at the drills we did and like the stuff we actually did, it was like, I don't know. It, it didn't seem like that different than what I've seen other teams do now, but I think it was from an early age, and that I think is a crucial thing. Like, we had a pretty memorable, like, miracle season my 14U year that kind of set the stage for for the years to come. Like, we were a tiny, tiny team at 14U, which is weird to say because kids haven't even grown yet. But we were tiny and hadn't won a tournament like all year. We were playing like the teams we played were these 14U dudes who were all six foot already, six foot three or whatever, and. you know, my, my dad kept saying, hey, we're going to win provincials. We're going to win provincials. No, we're going to win provincials. And we all, I mean, we were all super excited to buy any 14-year-old kid, like, hey, you're going to win provincials? Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, 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 we'll do that. And then uh, we went and had a thriller in the provincial final with this tall Forest City team that still to this day is, like, for the people who were there, they'll, they'll speak fondly of it. Um, I think we won 33-31 in the third set. Uh, of the provincial final at 14U, one of the craziest games I've ever played in. Played a lot of volleyball. Yeah, that yeah. still is like maybe one of the craziest games. And so, like from that point on, our belief was so strong because we'd said all year we were going to do it, and then we did. So then it was like pretty much everything we said we were going to do, we went and did, um, which is something I think is is pretty unique. So. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I've heard from your dad that was the only tournament you won that year was provincials, right? So. How, yes. did, how did you really ignite the belief where you get back from an all-day Saturday tournament and you guys finish whatever you finish? And you're like, oh, we're going to win provincials, but we didn't, we didn't win a tournament in February. Like, how does that happen? How do you stay connected to your goal when you're not getting, like, the, the result right off the hop? Well, I think it was two things. Like, the goal was so clear. There was no mystery around what the goal was. Like, we're going to win provincials. But it was also repeated so frequently said that it was unacceptable to say, ah, oh, we're not going to win provincials. Like, you just didn't say that. Nobody was allowed to say that. Um, you know, and just kind of it, it was ingrained in us. And over the months, it was just like, no, we are going to win provincials. Even though we hadn't won a tournament, um, I don't think anybody for once doubted that we were going to lose. Maybe they did. If they did, they certainly kept it to themselves. <laughs> nice. So you go through that system as a club player. Your club team is the core of your high school team. So you're also winning offset championships on the road to do this. When you get to Western University, what's the culture like there? Because obviously you've grown up in this since 14. You, like you said, we're going to win, we're going to win provincials. Then you get to Western where OUA and U sports is a holy, it's a different animal, right? So how did you, that affect your first year and, and getting kind of the culture there figured out? Well, it, it happened immediately. There was a, <laughs> it was kind of, I I don't know. I look back at those times as kind of they're kind of a tough times for me. I would say like because I guess I, I assumed that you know on any sort of program that we would you know be <laughs> that's what you would play to win. Like you say, hey, we're going to win the championship, and you know the first goal setting session we had with that team, I was the only guy who said no. We're like we're going to win provincials. Um, which was surprising to me. I was kind of upset. I was like, wait, these guys are so good. They're so talented. They're better even than the players I played with, some of them. You know, like, how do they not expect to win? Um, and that, So that was an adjustment. And the other thing, my first practice, because my first 
time back for, at Western, like with the team, I had just won the junior world championship on the beach. And I'd missed the first two weeks of practice at Western for that tournament. And so I come back and my first practice, Jim goes, hey, Garrett, can you, uh, we'd like you to do a little speech for the guys just about greatness and what you did. And I was like, really? Like that, that doesn't really make sense. And, uh, and he's like, no, no, do it, do it. And I said, okay. And so they get everybody together right before the practice. I go, I, I, I kind of like, hey, and, and they all immediately run off and start the drill and kind of leave me hanging like a kind of practical joke on me. Like to, I don't know why. And it was like, oh my God, this is so different. Like <laughs> I had to grow up real quick. Um, at Western, so yeah, it was, but from there it was a lot better, <laughs> like it got better over the years, but uh, yeah, it was definitely a tough adjustment to start. Now, I, we will switch, switch gears into beach eventually, but I do want to ask you one Western question because uh, you and I may, may talk about it, it's one of my favorite moments from youth sports, where at Nationals, the Canberra crew was at the benches during timeouts, and you go into... <laughs> You go into an Alberta or Trinity Western timeout and the coach is talking about what rotation are we in, what rotation are they in, what's the serving plan, all this technical, tactical stuff. Whenever they went to Western's timeout, eventually somebody would start yelling, let's go. And it would just be like this ferocious thing where like Jim Sage and the other coaches didn't even really get a word in edgewise because everybody's like, let's go, come on, Purple, let's get a win here. Yeah, come on, boys, let's go. What was it like being in an environment like that where like Alberta and Trinity are very like almost Glenn Hogus where they're talking like the national team guys do and then there's just you guys just riled up and ready for a fight? Yeah, well, we, we had a couple of fighters on our team, actually. <laughs> a couple of tough guys on the team. You know, it was fun. Like that was the thing about that team. It was like, that team really wanted to be great, and, but, but nobody, like, nobody really cared about the X's and O's. It was like, let's just go out there and get it done, boys. And that, that was kind of our thing. Like in the team room before games at that tournament, it was like, no, are we doing game plan? No. We're doing the Donnie to music in the, in the team room before the game. Like, we're not getting prepared. What do you mean game plans? No, go up there and win. Like, we're dancing in the team room. Like, we're just kind of really trying to enjoy it because a lot of those guys were smart guys and knew that, like, this is, this is it. Like, you know, this is it for them. Like, we're going out there to try to win, but this volleyball thing is, like, not their life. Like, you know, for me and maybe some of the other guys who've gone into coaching, it's like, okay, it's persistent. But for, like, I don't know, a lot of those guys, it was like, no, this is it. So you better enjoy it. Nice. That's a great way to go into it because if we recap the path there, like Trini Western in the quarters, perennial team, they've been good for as long as they've been good for. Like, it's just insane. You, you get a win in five, I believe. And yes. then you come across the, the big rival, McMaster, where I don't think anyone on your roster has ever beat them or vice versa. Nobody at MAC has ever lost to Western, including regular season games, right? Well, we've we beaten them a few times over the years in regular season. Oh, I didn't once realize or, that. Once or twice. But in OUA finals, but they had that year, that year they had never, we had never beaten them. We played them three or four times. And we hadn't beaten them that year at all. Um, and for, yeah, for us to come out and win was pretty cool. And like you said, there was just no game plan. It was just let's let's get going here. Yeah, like what do you like? We get, what do you game plan? So Jim used to do this thing. You know, he'd list the scouting report or whatever. And you know, he, so we did the same thing. But it was like scouting report. Okay, this guy. Okay, hits well cross. Hits well line. Good passer. Good blocker. And I was like, <laughs> okay, coach, what's the plan here? Like, how do we? This guy's very good. How are we gonna like, stop? This guy's him? good. It's like it, that was like one to six. The game plan. Setter. Great setter. Like distributes it well. Fast offense. And we're like, coach, like. And so when, thing, when the game plan looks like that, it's like, okay, well, we're not going to, like, 
outsmart this team. We've got to try to fold them up or just play better or something. And so that's where you see all the, let's go! Because <laughs> it's like, we're not, we're going to like, oh yeah, they're, oh, they're doing this, that. No, no, let's just go, come on. Which is, <laughs> that's fun. Awesome. And yeah, just to wrap up that year in Nationals, playing against Reed, you didn't get a chance to play against your little brother much because obviously you attended the same high school. The club difference, I don't think his team really got to play against yours unless there was practices, but with the two... There was two age groups between you, so you wouldn't mm-hmm. ever see each other. Yeah, never. Um, so what was it like playing against your little brother? Yeah, it, was, it wasn't that big a deal, actually. Which uh, A lot of people have asked me that, like, oh, yeah, you played your brother in the final. I was like, well, that season for us was, like, you know, very, like they were a great team, and their team wasn't really about him. Like, he was a great contributor, but they were a team, right? Where, and so, like... Playing them, it wasn't like he and I were going head to head or anything. Like right, he was right. just playing, and like I knew uh, he was good, but it wasn't like you know. And he doesn't bug me about it, like about beating me, because <laughs> like he knows like it was just the the situation was at what it was. Like it was a team who had had to work so hard to get there, playing a team who really should have been there, and so like you know it was what it was. Uh, yeah, it was. It wasn't really that big a deal playing him. I don't know. It's kind of weird. Nice. I think, yeah, people really wanted a story out of that one, but now that I think back, like, they had Riley Barnes and uh, uh, Brett Walsh was setting. Like, they yeah. had a really stacked team. Yeah. You're right. The the outcome wasn't just on Reed's shoulders. He was contributing, yeah. but, like... It yeah. wasn't like we were serving Reed and he was digging me up every time and, like, he totally dominated me. Like, we weren't even really, I don't know, libero and left side. Like, do you... He maybe dug me a few times, but, like, I mean, yeah, like... I don't really think there was much of a story there. Definitely, definitely. So let's circle back to this Beach World Championship, because like you said, you were summer of grade 12 going into your first year, and you actually won U21 Worlds, which I think is your third or fourth youth Worlds, because you would have played with Sidgwick. That was my fourth. So count it down with me. You would have started with Sidgwick in actual U19. So my first was with Will Sidgwick in U19, and then I played with Dan Deering in that same year in Blackpool, England, the U21. Okay, and you were Canada, Canada 2 that year, Yeah, right? and we lost to, we lost to, I think, Evandro no way. in the qualifier, I think. I can't remember. I know it was a Brazilian team, but I think it was Evandro in the qualifier. Um, and then the next year, I trained all year with Nick Del Bianco, um, who I think is still playing pro indoors. If not, he might have recently yeah, stopped because like, I think he's back helping Trinity. But yeah, a guy who played yeah. and and he yeah. and I trained all year. He came to Toronto and we were going 19U hard, right? And then uh, we came fourth at the U19, missed out on a medal. It's tough, and so I didn't even, I wasn't even expecting that year to go to U21. And Schachter was going to go with Dan Deering, and then Dan was like 200 to go, so Schachter's like, oh well, Garrett, why don't, do you want to do you want to come? And I was like, yeah, of course. I'm going to go. So that was how it came together. And how soon before the tournament was this? It was like a month. Oh, my gosh. That it was like a month because U19 was in, uh, like, late July. And yeah. then the U21 was in September-ish, early September. So it was like one month. We didn't even – we played nationals together, but there was not a lot of training or planning or anything. It just happened. How does a world championship just happen? Well, when you get guys like Garrett May and Sam Schachter on the same team, <laughs> good things happen. What do you remember about Turkey that year? I remember everything, man. What are you talking about? That was crazy. That was my second time in Turkey as well. Because um, the year before, the U19s was there. I remember everything, Did man. you guys talk about expectations before going? Yeah, absolutely. Did you, was your 
was Sam on the same page? Did you guys get off the flight knowing you're going to win Worlds? I don't, I don't think he did. And I would say this to him if he was here. I think he was surprised that we won. I remember there was a moment after we won because my dad and Marquise were there with us. Marquise was my coach all that year. Um, and my dad was there as my parent, but also as my coach. And so that was kind of our little foursome. And Leonard was there as well, but he was just kind of there as the Volleyball Canada. It was like the four of us. And I can remember, like, after we got back to the room, after winning and all that, we got back, we were getting changed to go for dinner or whatever. And I can just remember seeing him sitting on the, uh, sorry, Sam, for telling this story if you don't want me to, sitting on the, like, the deck or the porch or whatever, and just kind of, like, blank stare, like, kind of in shock, it looked like. And maybe it was him realizing how good he could be, or I don't know, because he was the best player in the world at that time. Right? Like he just went and showed that he was the best player. In, they served him every ball. He was the best blocker in the tournament. Like, and so I don't really think he expected it, which is crazy. Because for me, it was like, yeah, we, we were going to do it. What do you mean? Of course we did it. I should have won the U19. Of course I'm going to win the U21. With Shaq here? Yeah, let's go. So that was really interesting. How did this goal setting come along? Because to you, it almost seems like common sense. Like, yeah, we're going we're gonna to win the tournament. Why else are we going? But I think to other people, like, do you get upset when one of the teams you're coaching says, oh, we want to make quarters? Like, how did you get this goal setting? How do you stay strong and connected to it when sometimes the results aren't coming? Like, somebody might sound crazy if they're like, oh, I, I didn't win U19 Worlds, but I'm going to win U21 this year. Like, in the same summer, a month later. Like, Yeah, I've had a lot of people, like, ask me about that because everything that I step into – I set my expectations very high, sometimes unreasonably, honestly. And I think, like, you need to have some sort of basis and reasoning for how you could. Like, you have to see a path to that goal, right? So, like, for me, you know, Nick and I were a team, and we, if we had to play better, we would have won the U19. The U21 wasn't that much harder. Like, the team who we – so Cantor Losiak won the U19 the year that I played – and they were in the U21. Like, it was, it, there's not a big difference there, right? So it was like, I could see the path. It was like, well, I was a great player at this tournament. Why can't I be a great player at this tournament? You know, but if, if you can't see the path, <laughs> then, like, it's probably not going to happen for you. So to set a goal, like, for me right now, like, oh, I'm going to be the Prime Minister of Canada. Well, I don't see the path. That's not, like, you know what I mean? Like, but for me to say, you know, I'm going to go and, be the coach of the year in the college league or I'm going to go and be a director at a video game company someday like I can see that path and so of course I would expect to do it I can see how it's going to happen and from an early age like that crush team right it was like we set a goal and we did it and so you shouldn't be surprised when you plan to do things and then they happen so like that's kind of been my whole career and so yeah I do get mad at people when when they, like, when my teams say for their goals, like, you know, yeah, let's be a top three team. What? What do you mean be a top three team? Like, if you're terrible, that's a great goal. But if you're half decent, of course, why? What do you mean top three? Win. So you're saying you're going to make the semi and then lose it because you only plan to be a top three team? Come on. Like, if you're there, if you could make it there, you couldn't win. Right? So, like, plan for that. So where, what would you say to, I, th I think the buzzword it would now would be like process, like the Philadelphia 76ers, 
they think if they do everything in their power, the, the outcome takes care of itself, or they don't want to say they're going to be NBA champions, they're going to take care of the process. Where you're willing to say, you're willing to write it down, put it on the wall and say, I'm going to be a world champion. Yeah. Like, how does your process, how do you connect that to practice? Like, what would a practice with Marquise look like? You said he was your coach. Like, are you connected to winning worlds a Tuesday afternoon of practice? Like, what does that look like? Yeah, and, and that's probably the thing I maybe take for granted is, like, everybody's got their own thing that makes them special. Like, for me, I was, like, one of my weaknesses is, like, proactivity. Like, setting practice times and, like, doing that was always my worst skill. Like, when I played with Dan, we barely practiced because I was lazy and didn't set up practice. But when I was at practice, I was at practice. Like, I was focused, intense, to get there to get better, practicing like I'm trying to like I'm trying to win. And so, yeah, absolutely, we're connecting with that goal. Like, and it, it's not something that was always said verbally, but it was certainly something that was said a lot. Like, hey, we're preparing to be the world champions. Every day, pretty much, you say that in practice. Like, so there, when you're in practice, yeah, if you don't have a great one, fine, but it's not like you've forgotten that you're here trying to prepare to be the best in the world. And so what that needs to look like, it just, I think it frames how you build up your day and your practice and all that. Yeah, like, if, if you don't mind, let's take a deep dive into that. Because speaking to Marquise, off the record, I hope to get him on the show soon. He was big in, like, journaling and mindful notes and making sure that, like, we were going to win practice today. Like, there was, there was nothing he was going to leave to chance. Like, did he kind of pass that on to you? Or how do you, he, how he, do you make sure you don't go through the motions and just show up? Because, like, being a beach player, sometimes you're practicing with the same group over and over again. Sometimes the weather's good. Sometimes the weather's bad. Your Ashbridge is probably on the same court. Like, how do you not just get into, like, a monotone routine at that point, right? Yeah, he tried to. He tried really hard to help me with that, and and a lot of it stuck. But some of the stuff that he was very good at is stuff that's just not really me. Like he did a. He, he was a, was great with preparation, and that's something that's been stuck with me. Like not necessarily preparation, like preparation the twenty minutes before practice. Say, like what are you doing twenty minutes before practice, like or even in your pepper in warm up. Are you just going through the motions? Like, are you just roll shot? Like, or are you peppering with the intent to be the best in the world? You know what I mean? Like, are you show, are you setting up the net with the intent to be the best in the world? Was something that that was super beneficial and, and has definitely stuck with me. But he tried to do the notes and things like that, and I'm the type of guy that like it just never stuck for me. Like, my, he does the mindful morning notes, and that's fantastic. But for me, I just forget, or I do it. But it could, it could stay in my head. Like, I didn't need to write it down. I just had it there. Um, you know, it's like some people make practice plans and write it down so it's there. I, ne I never write that down. I make a practice plan, but I don't need to write it down. It's just there. I just have it. And so that that's kind of... So I, I, we worked on that stuff a little bit. But, yeah, I mean, I was very thankful to have him. And I find I pop off a bunch of things that... He used to say, and my dad used to say, and uh, every coach really, you, you take something with you. Do you remember an example of like when either you or a teammate or even teams you're coaching have veered off path? Like I think it's easy to like puff your chest in and say we're going to win provincials this year, but like I said, bringing it back to like the practice environment, when somebody gets off path, are you just reminding them? Like if they buy in, they should be able to self police it. But what happens when somebody's just not bringing their all today? Like whether they had a bad day at school or they broke up with their boyfriend or their girlfriend or something's a distraction. How do you make sure when they're between those lines of practice, like, it's, it's game on and they're locked in? I don't have a great answer, be, like, <laughs> because, like, as a teammate, it's not your responsibility, right? Like, as a teammate, it's not my job 
to make sure, especially in indoor, it's not my responsibility to make sure that my teammate's doing okay and bringing his best, right? I've got to bring mine. And if, I, if he's distracted, but then I get involved in his distraction, now we're both distracted, right? So, and there were times that I was definitely distracted. In my third year at Western specifically was one of my best statistical years and probably the best, one of the best teams that I was ever on. But I was probably the worst teammate I've ever been. Um, I was caught up in my ego about getting my stats and being the guy and really came down to it. Like that was a year and the, you know, that was a year that we really could have meddled at nationals and we really could have, you know, done some damage. But I, I was, you know, I, I'd get frustrated if my setter would set somebody else, I'd turn away from the team instead of like coming in and supporting my teammates. Right. So I was distracted. I was a terrible teammate. Had I been a better teammate, would we have won? Maybe. Right. And so, sure, it happens, but you just got to keep moving. So you're saying when this is at maximum capacity, everybody's coming to work and they're focused on themselves and what they're bringing. Right. So you don't need to get on teammates and do the whole like Disney movie and give a great speech and all that stuff. Everybody needs to take care of what they need to take care of. Like the Bill Belichick, do your job. thing. Well, right? like with adults. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Like these are people who are adults. Like when you're talking about men and women, like they're managing their own stuff. You have to be. With kids, the, you know, the coach and, and leaders can help them with that, man, learn to manage their own things. But when you get into university or pro or whatever, like, everybody's managing their own stuff. So, like, I, I, it's a full-time job managing my emotional and my stuff, right? And about being a, a bad teammate, like, it wasn't like that affected my team in a negative way. It might have. But I played worse because of it, right? Like, you just know you're a bad teammate. You're being... You're being not great to your teammates, so it affects the way you play as well, right? So, like, you know, could somebody have yelled at me or said something to me? Would that have made it better? I don't know. <laughs> like, so nobody addressed it the year no. you identified it first? No, nobody's or? ever told me that I was a terrible teammate. But, and maybe I was not as bad as I'm saying, but, like, I, looking back now is, like, if I had been more bought into the team, more committed to the team's success, and not committed to leading the league in kills per set, then we might have meddled. Was that a conscious stat you had going into that year? Like you told yourself, I want to lead the league in kills? Well, I knew that I wanted to be the best player in the country, and that was one of my goals. And, like, how do you do that? I'm paying attention to who's getting awards and, and these things. And it was a very selfish thing to think about, right, truly. Like, why am I not focused on as much on winning? I mean, I was, but... That year, I was just caught up in it, right? And because I was good enough to do that, I, yeah, I led the league in points. But my team finished second in Ontario, no different than the year before. And we finished fourth at Nationals, which is like, you had two chances to win a medal. So, like, what good is having the highest score if you're not going to get results, right? And so, like, it was, uh, yeah, I mean, it, at, the, it, at the time... I can't really say what I was thinking, but looking back, I know I wish I had somebody there to, to help me, or if I could have better managed it myself, I, I think things would have been different. Interesting. Uh, thank you for sharing that. Um, so let's, let's switch back to the beach stuff, because, I mean, it's a volleyball show, but really, I, I could talk about beach all day. <laughs> so you graduate Western. You're already a world champion. Was there a big jump? You mentioned the jump from U19 to U21. It's kind of the same. The same teams are there, and the same teams are being competitive. Was it different playing against men when you got to the world tour, like people who play for a living? Yeah, it, it was different. Um, 
for one big reason, I think, and this is kind of understated, I think, when people think about pro athletes. And when you watch sports on television, you actually don't see this either, which is interesting. It's like these people you're competing against every tournament are the most competitive people in the world. So think about the most competitive person you know. These people you're competing against are more competitive. <laughs> right? Like, and that's every single match you play. You know, you play in an OVA tournament on the beach, and how many competitors are out there? Maybe one, two? Maybe you get a nice final where guys are scrapping it out, but most of the time it's like, you know, this guy's playing to have fun or whatever, which is great. <laughs> but the jump is like to men, these are adults who are putting their life on the line. They, they've got skin in the game. It, it, these guys are competitors. Like, I'm not a fighter. I'm not a tough guy. But I almost got in a fight in a match. Like, how does that make sense? It's because that's the level of compete that are in these guys. And it's, it, it, it wasn't shocking because I'm also a competitor, so it wasn't like I, I was surprised, but it was overwhelming just that every single game you play is a fight. And yeah, so, like, you know, getting ninths and sevenths and fifths or whatever, it's like I get why people take satisfaction in that because, like, you had to win four games. And four competitive, tough games, right? But, like, we don't play to come fifth, right? You play to win. And to do that, you got to win seven. Seven of the hardest, like, every time. And so that's, it's just a lot, right? It's a lot to deal with. And in beach volleyball specifically, more than other sports, it's like tennis. More like tennis than it is like indoor volleyball. Like, think in tennis. Like, think of how many competitors are out there. You got guys who are 250th who come out and are scrapping with the number one guy in the world, right? In indoor, like, it's a team game, they share it, but in the beach, it's the two guys and they are tough as nails. So that was overwhelming and, and something I think, like, we miss in Canada, to be honest. Do you think there's a way to recreate that in practice or do you just have to go on tour and experience it as much as possible till you're really ready to either accept it or kind of bow out, right? Because it's not for everybody. Yeah, I think both. I think both, like... You have to recreate, recreate in practice. Like, we're in Canada. We're not going to, we don't get to, we don't have the luxury of, like, going and being, you know, in a place where there's a ton of, you know, foreign competitive teams where we can compete with. We've got to fly overseas every tournament. So, yeah, like, that's the only really alternative I see, unless you're going to put up the dough and go somewhere, like some teams have. And you can see how they've gotten a lot better. But, uh, and you have to go and experience it. Like, you have to see and, and understand the expectation that, like, to qualify is hard. Like, you gotta fight. You gotta be tough, man. Because these guys are like, they also paid three grand for their flight and hotel to be there. They're not, they're not trying to go home with nothing. Like, you gotta, you gotta take it. So, I, and it's, it's overwhelming and tiring and all that. So, with you being, a high-level player, and now you're a high-level coach. So you've been through the system, and obviously me involved with the national team program. I don't want to label our athletes as soft, but I do. There, there's a mood around practice where if you argue a call or if you chirp through the net, you're a bad guy, and people don't want to practice with you because like you're disrupting the environment. You're, you're, you're a distraction. 
where what I'm hearing when you're between the lines at a qualifier, that's almost the environment that you need to be able to compete and excel and, and perform at where you're a college coach. I, I coach college for a lot of years. The guy who's usually the chirpist gets distracted and gets off his own game, right? But what you're saying is that's the environment that needs to happen on a Tuesday morning practice if you're going to perform on tour, right? Like, would you bring that same energy and fight to practice as soon as you experience it on tour? I did. I did. I did. But see, I did all the time. So this wasn't new to you. Yeah, like I did all the time. And it wasn't necessarily the chirping and stuff like that. That happens sometimes. But it was just like, if you're going to side out, you got to hit a good shot every time or make a dig again. Like if he digs you, you got to make a play back. Otherwise, you're going to lose. Right? Like some, some intensity with just your play. And oftentimes that will show itself in the chirping and the energy and whatever, the arguing calls. But, like, if you look at our most successful men's team of all time, Mark and John, they still argue about games of short court or whatever that they had. They are two of the most fiercest competitors that I know. And it's like, well, why? Because they trained together and they competed against each other all the time. And so, like, no, I don't think our guys are soft at all. I think they're tough. And that's why they succeed. One guy in particular, Grant O'Gorman, like, I played with Grant, you know, and he and I aren't that close, but I really admire how he can go into practice, fight hard against you, then when you step off the court, say, hey, man, that was a great fight. We should do that again tomorrow. And I yeah, think, and I should correct myself. You're right. Chirping doesn't make you a tough guy. Yeah. Getting dug and then staying mentally tough in the drill and wanting to win practice versus, yeah. oh, I didn't win practice today and go on your water break and just think it's fine, right? Yeah. Like that's that's probably a better version of what not tough is, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and I really admire Grant for that. I think he's maybe the one guy I've ever met in Canada, including myself, because I I had a tough time with that, like having a competitive practice and then relating to my opponents and actually working with them to get better. He has found a way to do that, and it pisses a lot of guys off. But I really admire that, and I don't know if I've ever told him that. So um, I wish I could practice with him more. With the Canadian system, we need that, right? Because everybody's a flight away. Even if you want to train with the Americans, that's a trip to California, right? So I think even though we're teams within teams in Canada, I think that's the environment where everybody's going to get better, right? Yeah, and uh, I wish I had to train with him more. And you can see, like, he's not the biggest guy. He's... But he's found a way to stay around because he does that, right? And so I think, I think that's the thing that people don't understand about the World Tour or about playing pro sport is that that's, it's not easy. It's not fun. It's fun sometimes if you enjoy that. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which, you know, for me it was like I, I definitely got tired of it. Well, we have a... A youth clinic to go run in a few minutes. Uh, so, like I said, you'll have to be a returning yeah. guest here. We usually like to wrap up every episode with just a unique story where you played volleyball at the highest level, but sometimes just silly stuff happens. Do you have any tales from the road, or maybe you want to elaborate on the story where you almost got in a fight on World Tour, where we've just had some funny stories where, like, Jake and Dallas got pulled over at gunpoint in Brazil. Like, that's a unique situation. It's kind of funny. Becky Pavin went to play pro, got to the airport, and just got in a random car because they said that they were her ride. Like... Yeah, volleyball players, we, we don't get the star treatment every once in a while. Something odd usually happens. Is there anything you can think of that's kind of like, man, looking back, that was, that was a weird one? I got a lot, man. <laughs> I got a lot, so that's fun. Um, I'll be sure to have, if I come back next time, I'll have another one too. But James Battison and I went to Guatemala, and 
you know, we came fifth. It didn't go great. And this was kind of at the end of when I had been playing. And I think the same for him. I don't know. But we, you know, we went to the players' party or whatever. And we got a ride from this guy in the truck. And it's what everybody was doing. It was great. And so we were there hanging out, having a good time. But we, we see our driver just putting back beers, <laughs> like crushing them. And we're like, oh, okay, so we're going to get somebody else to drive us back. Like, it's going to be fine. Um, but then, like, towards the end of the night, he comes up to us. He goes, okay, guys, like, time to go back. Like, we're going back. I was like, what? <laughs> Dude, you're, you're hammered. Like, you can he's like, no, 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 good, we'll go. Uh, we were like, no, we're not going. <laughs> but so we, <laughs> we took a cab. But we were on the road beside him, taking a bunch of a couple of the other teams in the van right beside us. Oh and we, we said, we're like, actually, Dan, just wait up. That guy's hammered. Like, we got to wait. <laughs> so we were like, man, like, that was sketchy. Um, not the sketchiest thing, but yeah, that's the first thing that came to mind. We were just like, whoa, whoa, what's, what's happening? You were like, dude, no, we're not going with you. Like, we, we were, you just saw you crushing beers. Like, <laughs> but yeah, so... That was weird. Uh, another Norseka story for the list. These That's are good. Right. Yeah. We're going to have to get Snake on the show. Apparently, he found a machete in the court. And when he showed it to the ref, they just continued to play on. Like, it was like, oh, the court's fine. Just found this giant knife where I peeled to. Yeah, we found some funny <laughs> things in the courts over the years. <laughs> Cam found a huge leg of a fence, like one of those wooden pikes of a fence. Pulled it out of the sand. That was pretty funny, too. <laughs> and again, he probably pulled it out and then just it was like, yeah, delay of game and then yeah, you went on, right? Deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. We were looking for that. Thanks. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I, I can't thank you enough for making the time to come on the show. Like I said, you'll have to come back on a couple times because we didn't really dive deep in anything. That was kind of a surface-level teaser of everything, but it was great information. Thanks for sharing what you did, and I can't wait to cheer you on with the George Brown squad. And you know, maybe we'll get you back on the beach someday. I don't, I don't, know. I don't know. Happy to do it, man. And love your show and what's going on. So happy to come back anytime. Awesome. Thanks. Uh, yeah, stay tuned, everybody. We got episodes every Friday, but uh, this was a good one. And, you know, hit up social media. Demand that Garrett comes back sooner than, you know, episode 40, whatever we're on. Yes, Guy Gaming. Subscribe. <laughs>